0: In this, uh, we've been looking at Galatians now, 13 part series, this is the last one. Okay, next next week we're going to be looking at a little (coughs) bit of Isaiah for five weeks, and the little term card will be out uh, next Sunday. So we've been looking at and learning from God's word and his letter um, to Galatians uh, from Paul, what have we learnt? Now I hope we've learnt, if you like, one main thing, so just pray, I, I pray that we've we're clearer on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look back. I know we don't normally do this. Let's flip back to the beginning of Galatians and let's run through. It's going to take five to seven minutes. But here we go. Paul, he's writing to the church. He's established with the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. This is a church that he's loved dearly and a church that he's built up And now that he's willing to fight for and defend. Why does he need to defend them, though? Well, as you get looked down in chapter 1, verse 7, because false teachers are infiltrated into the church and they're teaching a different gospel. In fact, Paul is so strong to say, that's no gospel at all. We'll come to what they teach in just a moment. So what then Paul does, he defends himself as a true apostle, a true teacher of the gospel. He's a witness of it. And he himself, as he says, I'm a recipient of it, of grace, he describes in chapter 1, verse 16. And he teaches this grace of the gospel offered by God, and he says it's received through faith in Jesus Christ. A faith, as he begins in chapter 2, a faith that um, is not earned through what we do, but rather a faith that brings freedom from having to earn anything. And he speaks about that in chapter uh, 2, verse 4. Christians are free, free from the justice our sins deserve, and now free to live for our Saviour. This is the gospel, it's like the, the benefits of the gospel. And Paul is so, if you like, keen to uh, keep the cl- clarity of the gospel that he, he challenges Peter halfway through chapter 2, who is hindering the clarity of the gospel. Peter, he opposes because he wouldn't eat with the Gentile believers who had trusted in the gospel. He wasn't acting in line with the gospel, is the point there. Paul was saying, you know, you can't preach a freedom in the gospel of Christ and then not live it out. And that was Peter's issue, and he was opposing Peter for that. Because what we believe and how we live according to that belief must be linked, completely There must be an integrity there. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 16, which is, if you like, the doctrinal heart of this letter. Because here is where Paul says this is what the gospel is. Have a look at it, chapter 2, verse 16. A man is not justified, that is made right, with God, legally, if you like, by observing the law. That is, by doing stuff, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Hashtag gospel. But there's a big problem. We get to chapter three, okay? The problem was that the Galatians were, they, they weren't listening to Paul, they were going back and they were listening to these false teachers. They were going back saying, oh, I only need to do this kind of stuff and then I'll be all right with God. Trying to earn their way to God. And what they've done, is chapter three is all about how they've misinterpreted the purpose of the law. It was given, actually, for us to see our need for a saviour, not to save us. This is the the, the means of salvation, the whole way through the Bible. It will always be that we need to put our faith in the promises of God, which is now faith in Jesus Christ. He kind of summarises chapter three, get to chapter three, verse 26, have a look at that if you want. And he's saying to these um, uh, to these people and saying, you can only be part of God's family, cherished children of Abraham, if you like. And it's not through a cultural heritage because you've been born a Jew or born British, as some people might say. But actually, it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he makes another summary statement in verse 28 of chapter three. We are all one in Christ Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile. Whatever our background, whatever we have done, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are sons, children of God. And he goes on in chapter four at the beginning there to say, therefore, if we're sons, we will inherit, we are heirs. So why go back? And that's the issue for the Galatians the whole time. They're going back saying, oh, well, I just need to do this, circumcision, whatever it may be, do stuff in order to be right with God. Why go back? Why jeopardise this precious, spirit-filled relationship that has been given through faith in Jesus Christ. Why lose, chapter five? this life giving joy, this freedom that Christians can know. Well, the Galatians, they're listening to this circumcision group of uh, these teachers who were saying that to be a true Christian, you've got to do stuff. Law obedience to get right with God. But Paul points out again and again that Christians are free free from that burden of trying to get right with God on our own by the stuff that we do why because Christ has done all that stuff for us and his life can be counted as ours as we put our faith in him chapter 5 verse 1 it's beautiful isn't it it is for freedom that Christ has set us free don't go back Don't go back to that old way. Use your freedom then, he says in in chapter five, verse six. To do what? To love the Lord, your saviour, but also to love each other. And he says at the end of that kind of section, chapter five, verse 16, don't squander this. Don't squander this beautiful freedom that Christ has brought you, indulging yourselves in the old way of life, your sinful natures. Rather, what does he say, as James showed us brilliantly last week, live in the spirit, live by the spirit. And Paul admits, he says, it's a battle. Chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. It's, but it's worth fighting against our old sinful natures. Why? Because we want the fruit. We want the fruit of the Spirit to be uh, uh, growing in our lives. All the fruit, remember. Concatenation, whatever it was. It brings freedom. It brings joy within. It brings joy without too. Because all of those around us become recipients of the fruit that is born of our lives as we keep in step with the Spirit. I mean, metaphorically speaking, it's kind of like, imagine your friends, your neighbours, as you bear the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Wherever you go, you leave a banana of peace, a mango of, you know, whatever it may be. Whatever you interact with someone, you leave, if you like, the fruit of the Spirit for them to enjoy, to see the beauty of and they begin to question, don't they? there, if you like, fruitless life. And they begin to wonder how, why you bear this fruit in your life. So we concluded last week, chapter 5, verse 25. It says this, Since we live by the Spirit, bearing its fruit, keep in step with it. Since you have the Spirit in your hearts as sons of God... Now, live according to that. And we saw in chapter 5, verse 26, we saw that keeping in step with the Spirit, essentially marrying what we believe with how we behave, it will mean serving others, not ourselves in relationships. And there was a warning, wasn't there, at the end of our section last week, chapter 5, verse 26, do not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. But what does Paul do as he begins chapter 6, he turns it the other way and says, positively now, as you bear fruit in your relationships with one another, guys of Christ Church Earlsfield, as you live out your faith in Jesus Christ, it enables you and I to call each other brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? A beautiful picture. And so what we're going to look at firstly to begin with is, if you like, gospel relationships. Relationships that are, if you like, outworkings Of the Spirit of God in our hearts. That's our first point today. And you see it on your sheets there. Gospel relationships. This is really looking at verses 1 to 6. It's very practical. And I'm going to have to be practical. Because the whole chapter 6 is very practical. So here we go. Let me explain firstly what's going on in these first couple of verses. (coughs) cast your eyes down you'll see what... uh, I hope you can see. He, He begins firstly with a very specific example of how to do... And how to live out gospel relationships. But then he explains, if you like, in verse 2, the principle behind that. But simply, we're called as Christians, as we bear fruit of the Spirit in our lives, as we respond to the gospel in our relationships. As we live in line with what we believe, our first little sub-point there, we're to carry each other's burdens Now, many of you have heard this illustration before. I think it's illustration number eight in my lineup. but here we go. Um, In my younger days, I used to uh, ski a little bit in Scotland. Many of you know that place a little bit. It's freezing, and it's not the best skiing at all. But I used to (laughs) help as well when I was up there as a teenager with a mountain rescue team. Now, one day we had a bit of a blizzard. We got a call. Someone had lost control skiing, like because it's white out. They can't see a thing. Anyway, they skied into a pylon, and uh, it was pretty... Disgraceful! What had happened? It was horrible. What had happened? We got there. There was blood everywhere, and the man's thigh bone was kind of out of his skin at his hip, and he completely dislocated it. And what did we have to do? Well, it was interesting. Every Scotsman that had already passed him had given, given him a little bit of whiskey, so he was quite happy with the situation, <laughs> even though he was quite near death. Um, but the pain was not too bad. We were in radio. We were radio contact with a, a consultant doctor. And uh, he was telling us, look, the man's going to die if you don't get him down. We can't get a helicopter and it's a blizzard. You've got to get him down the slope. He's about to bleed out and off you go. So we were saying, well, what do you want us to do? Okay, so he we said, well, you're going to have to put the bone back in and, like, and stop it bleeding. It's pretty gruesome, this, isn't it? But it's a great story. <laughs> you can just bear with me about <laughs> moment. Anyway, the point is, to restore the man, to actually to save the man, we had to painfully... <coughs> Push his bone back in. And it was like the doctor was telling us exactly what to do, where to press and all that kind of stuff. The the bone was not in its natural relationship with the body. And we had to get it back in to a good relationship with the body, if you like, in its right place. But it was painful. We had to inflict terrible pain on this chap. But it was a restorative pain. It was a healing pain. Look at verse 1, though, with me if you can. Look what it says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And the word restore there is interestingly the same word that is used to, to reset a dislocated bone. That is, it's going to hurt, but it will restore you. Now practically what does this mean? Uh, someone in the church, it says is there, is caught in a sin. That is, you know, let's think they've evaded their taxes or whatever. You know, they've had a you know, bit of an affair. They've, they've been caught as the gossip in the office. They've got back and that someone's seen that the source of the gossip was you. You've been caught out. But I want you to notice who's in danger here. Have you spotted that? Is it the one who's been caught, the one who's fallen there, sin? No, look what Paul said. He's addressing the church. It's the church that's in danger, if you like. And the warning comes to us corporately, if someone's caught in a sin, well really to, it's a warning against pride, isn't it? To not look down our noses, to not point the finger. Think what would happen if, if the church were to respond to someone who's caught in, in, in sin, uh, in the way that chapter 5 verse 26 pointed out, in a, in a conceited way. There'd be a sense of superiority, <coughs> wouldn't there? Oh, look down my noses, I've not done that, but you have, how, how terribly good am I and how terribly bad you are? That is not to happen. No, the church is to restore, to not look down. And notice we're not to ignore the person who is caught in their sin. And what we mean by caught in the sin is, is overwhelmed by, if you like, overtaken by, unable to see that what they are doing, the actions that they are going through with, are wrong according to God. Or we must not ignore. But likewise, from Paul elsewhere, we're not to be quick to criticise either. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, verse 5, is very clear on that. We must not be quick to criticise. But surely the warning here is that we must not either be afraid to confront or criticise, but rather we must restore and gently. That is, in the case of on a ski mountain in Scotland, to grab the leg to rip every ligament I possibly could and put the bone back in place. It's painful, but it's necessary. This is a responsibility that we all have to protect Christ's honour and Christ's church here in Christ church, Earlsfield. He laid down his life for this church, his church. And we need to be prepared to do likewise. It's painful, but we must not avoid that pain. But we, must, we, must, we can't ignore that word gentle, can we? We must do it lovingly, not judgmentally, I think the point is here. Not with that conceited superiority which Paul warns of in chapter 5, verse 26. Looking down our noses at someone. But I think there's also a last little warning of verse 1 as well. We mustn't be naive here. Because restoring someone gently who's, let's say, avoiding their taxes whatever, in an affair, whatever it may be, This is a dangerous ground to be in. One person described it this week as I was reading. uh, A minefield of temptation. Hence why Paul says, I think, watch yourselves. Uh, Just a practical note on that is, don't try and restore someone on your own. However gentle you think you will be, it is a minefield of temptation. Restore gently. But I think just wisely, let's do it with others. That's the specific point which Paul points to. Now we don't know if there was a, a particular issue in, in the church in Galatia which he was referring to there. But now he makes the general principle. Let's look, with ver- look at verse 2 if we can. He's making the general principle here. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfil the law of Christ. It's that other centred approach to life that actually looks. You look around and you say how can I lighten the load of someone around here? If you can't see the burden, the load on people's shoulders, then I guess you might be blinded by your own selfishness and pride. Look around, there are people with loads on their shoulders everywhere, metaphorically. You know, the load of loneliness, the load of sickness, the load of disappointment as life just hasn't quite worked out as you might have dreamt ten years ago. These are awful burdens to bear. And I think pretty much all of us have some burden, some load. But we're to carry each other's. We're to lighten the load and their burdens. But here's an interesting thing. If, if you imagine, so the, the picture is here of an overwhelming weight on someone's shoulder. Now, you can't take that weight off someone, can you? Half a mile away, saying, Oh, that looks like a big weight over there. No, you can't. The picture is very clear that Paul wants us to understand. You have to get right alongside someone, shoulder to shoulder, and take the load off them. Share the load, carry each other's burdens. Why bother? Well, primarily because someone stood shoulder to shoulder with you and spiritually took every weight off your shoulder that you had to bear and carried it to a cross. Carry each other's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. Essentially saying they're modelling our life on Christ's life. So firstly they carry each other's burdens. But then he kind of flicks it around. Carry your own load. And it might seem slightly opposed here. There's a little word missing in our translation right at the beginning of verse 3. The, the word for should be there. A little connective, and it kind of brings the two together. Uh, so read it as this. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So if you, if you do think yourself as something, you know, as you sort of look across and there's someone carrying a, a burden and so on, if you think a little bit... Too much of yourself and you think you deserve everything from everyone else, then you'll never have the servant heart, will you, to serve anyone else other than yourself? You probably won't even see the need of others because you'll just be consumed with your own. You'll certainly be living a life feeling probably hard done by all the time as well as you look around and think, why have they got that and not me? And in reality, the sad thing is you've probably got a great deal. You just can't see it. The reality is that if we, if we think you know, nothing of ourselves here, um, then, well, sorry, the reality is that we are nothing of ourselves, but we have everything in Christ. That's what Paul is pointing here. But we mustn't be deceived But it's only when we have this very lowly opinion of ourselves and a very high opinion of who Christ is and what he has done for us, it is only then that Paul is saying verse 1 and 2 begin to make sense. You can carry the load of others, the burdens of others. Because it's only then that you stop comparing yourselves to others and of dwelling in self-pity that you begin to see the needs of others. Which is the point of verse 4. Each one of you should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself. It's a strange phrase. We'll look at that in a moment. Without comparing himself to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. What he's pointing back to is saying that conceited kind of pride is self-serving. It ignores the needs of others. But if you have a humble view of yourself, that you think of yourself as nothing he says here, and have a very high view of Christ it is only then you begin to look out and begin to serve others because you have been ultimately served yourself. And therefore, we need to stop comparing ourselves to others or standing in judgment. Rather, he's saying here, is you need to bear your own load Take pride is a slight irony here, but he's saying you, realize, you need to realise your own responsibility before God. Now, the load is not the same as the burden The verse 1 and 2. He's essentially saying it's a rucksack of responsibility. And you need to carry it. It's not the crushing burden, but an image of responsibility. So gospel relationships, that is, lives that are transformed by the Spirit, living by the Spirit... How will that look today for us here? It will mean that we carry each other's burdens. But we realise our own responsibility. We've got our rucksack of responsibility as well. Lastly, very quickly, let's turn to verse 6. I didn't want to spend too much on this. But I've put it down as literally love your teachers. Gospel relationships, we really need to love our teachers. Literally it reads, anyone who receives a catechism, that is who is instructed, is to share all good things with the one who's instructed them. So if any of you ever gets a Porsche 911, you know where to bring it, okay? Amen. I'm very happy with that, that's fine. No, seriously. It does, it does, of course, point to the financial provision of the people who teach the Bible and church. But I do want to say at that point, I, I guess all of us who are supported by you are immensely grateful uh, for your generosity but for the ministry of Christchurch Charlesville to continue of course we need all of us to get involved but that phrase sharing of all good things in verse 6 and our, our gospel relationship I think is an important principle here it is not just our money that's easy in some ways to do it's clinical you just say alright it goes out and that's fine the sharing of all good things is deeper than that yes it will be encouragement I read this today Andy and, and it's, it's encouraged me in my faith in this way. That is wonderful. And a, an encouragement and a sharing of all good things. But also it must be our struggles too. Because in the hands of a sovereign saviour, then, then all of, of course our struggles work out for our good. I think it's right that we share them. They are encouraging to see how a sovereign, sovereign God holds us up even through our struggles. Love your teachers. Now the biggest corrective I found in these opening verses is that we're not alone. We never ought to feel alone. We have both a responsibility, we see that in verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, but also there is great comfort there, isn't there? That whatever weight is on your shoulders right now, you do not have to bear it yourself. We need these gospel relationships, don't we? relationships defined by the gospel and motivated by the gospel. And those of us who are Christians need to be responsible, keeping in step with the Spirit, bearing each other's burdens. And I guess we just need to ask ourselves, will we do that? Will we do that? And when you do, I think it's fair to say that Christ Church will become even brighter, ever brighter, a more attractive community of believers In a very exciting but a very dark city. To live in relationships defined by the gospel, we need help, we need wisdom. And that's exactly what Paul turns to in this middle part of chapter 6. Let's look down, if we can, at verse 7 to 10. And we're on our second point here, now: gospel wisdom. To help us live out the gospel in the church, in our relationships, in our community, Paul turns to a very well-known farming principle. And you well know, I have no clue about farming, but here we go. So it's not complicated. We reap what we sow. Put it this way. If you sow a seed of an apple tree, what do you expect? Oranges. No, apples. I mean, it's, it's very simple, isn't it? Uh, it's a fix. It's an absolute principle in farming in nature. You reap a harvest according to what you sow. It's not difficult, is it? Even I can understand this. It must be easy. So verse seven, Paul begins by warning the Galatians again to not be deceived by the false teachers. They need to listen to good instruction, value that. That was the point of verse six. So that they won't ignore this principle of verse seven following. It's true in both farming, but it's true in our spiritual lives as well before God. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Sow a tomato seed, you reap a tomato seed. Uh, plant and so on at harvest, but also whatever you sow, you will eventually reap. There is an inevitability to the harvest, if you like. Now, the seed may lie in the ground for a little while. That's the frustrating thing about anything organic, isn't it? It takes a while, but it will come up. That is, it's not the reaping that determines the harvest. It's the sowing that determines the harvest. Some people call it it's the law of returns, And it's it's called that because it's just an unstoppable principle, and that is why Paul says God can't be mocked. You see it there in those verses. If you sow, this is the point of the verses. If you sow to the sinful nature, just to please yourselves, ignoring God's wisdom, like it's like you're mocking God. But you can't be. You'll reap a harvest, and it's it's sobering. Look at it, verse eight. It's destruction. Eternal destruction. That is, if you give in to your sinful nature, you reap a spiritual destruction. And Paul, I'd love to spend a whole week on this, but Paul is essentially saying, look at the nature of sin and what it does. When you turn your back on God, however you do that, sin makes things fall apart. It hurts. It hurts you, it hurts the church. It hurts those you love. The community you live in. and That is the deception of sin, isn't it? And so many of us know that so much. We think it will bring this thrill, this happiness. And it may do for the moment. But not the lasting joy and the happiness that we so long for. And verse 8, look at it. It's a beautiful phrase. But it's simply saying, Christian, so well. So well, so to please the Spirit. That is, live as you are. You've got the Spirit of Christ inside you. Someone has saved you. The Lord Jesus, He's given you the Spirit in His hearts. Don't go back, don't sow against your nature, if you like, to the old way of life. Heed the warnings. But the negative, and that was a little negative, if you like, is is wonderfully balanced with this beautiful positive of verse 9 and 10. Look at that, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And essentially Paul has warned them that their sin will essentially find them out in the end. They will reap a harvest of it. But here now we positively encourage that those are living for Christ will one day see the fruit of what they've sown. And the benefits of what they've sown. I think perseverance, if you, if you like, is the, is the big Kind of key here. Making the gospel known can be slow work, can't it? We can tell someone the gospel again and again and again and we think, God, when are they ever going to listen and so on? And even in our own lives, as we sow, we we think, oh, well, you know, the the quick thrill is over there, sowing to the sinful nature, but it seems so slow over this way. But we must sow the gospel into our hearts, sow to the, the Spirit and tirelessly continue to do so. Uh, with individuals, people we know, we may never see that harvest. But we must continue to do good, not to save us, but to honour the one who has saved us. And our lives should be orientated to live for that, to appreciate the harvest of the gospel of love and the grace that we can know through Jesus Christ as we encourage one another and as we sow gospel seeds into the lives of those we know. So finally, um, very quickly, in conclusion of this uh, letter, this whole letter, it's a wonderful, I think very moving, um, gospel invitation, I've put it down there. It's an invitation because as you get to the end of this letter, you might be sat here thinking, well, I've been sowing, if you like, to my sinful nature. I've been indulging my sinful nature, chapter 5, verse 16. Now there's an opportunity to turn. And... Paul offers an invitation for us all to turn to sow to the Spirit. Look it even, even takes the pen up himself uh, in verse tw- uh, verse 11 at the large letters, maybe because he's got eye trouble, which might be the trial that he speaks of back in chapter four, verse 14. that's what many people think. But how does he finish this gospel letter? Firstly, there's a new warning. Well, it's not really a new warning, but I wanted all my points to have a new thing. It's the same warning that he's been saying the whole way through the letter, but he's saying it again, so it's newish. The false teachers are taking the easy route, they've been avoiding persecution, they're encouraging circumcision. Just do a bit of stuff and you'll be saved, and everything will be fine. It's an outward sign. Paul warns the, the Christians of Galatia that these outward signs, any obedience to kind of any law, anything that we can do or boast in of our flesh, of ourselves, it's nothing before God in terms of salvation. It can't save you. It's just the easy way out. Be warned from thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. You will never on your own, whatever the outward signs that you can show to everyone else. Look at me, I grew up in this household. I went to this school. I'm British. (laughs) Whatever the outward signs that you can show to anyone else of moral uprightness that you can display and show off, it will never be good enough for God's standards for salvation. You cannot boast in anything of your own making, anything of your flesh. We are to boast in one thing alone. And that is of our new identity in verse 14 and 15. These words, wow, they're powerful. Aren't they? May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The point is, my friends, when we look at our lives, whether they are relatively good, oh, we can look at others and say, well, I'm morally better than that person in the news. At the point here is that, I, you know, I, I've got circumcision, some of these people were saying in the churches in Galatia. Or the other side, whether you sit here and you look back in your life and people know some of the stuff that you've done and you're, you're a little bit kind of embarrassed because there's a kind of a, a relative kind of moral lowness to what you've been doing. And Paul here says you're like the uncircumcised. Paul is saying here, both of those things, whether circumcised or not, it means nothing. What counts? Well, simply says that if we trusted Christ and his death and his resurrection, taking the punishment our sins deserve, making us right with God, (laughs) justifying us, as chapter 2, verse 16 says, that's what counts. And that's what we must boast in. Why? Because it makes us a new creation. That is, someone who is spirit-filled. A person who has certain hope and everlasting joy. So who are you going to boast in? The choice today and the choice this week and the choice in your life is you either boast in yourself or you boast in Christ. Christ. And if you put your faith in Christ, you have this new identity. Boast in the one who has bought you that identity. And finally, lastly, boast in the one who has bought you a new life. A life marked by peace, as Paul testifies to, and mercy. And do note that 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 eternal peace and mercy from God may not bring physical peace and mercy from those around us as Paul is quick to testify. Do you see that? With the marks of probably torture that he had on his body. But ultimately, you see, those who trust in the gospel that Jesus and Jesus Christ alone can save us and give us freedom from our sin, only they are recipients of God's grace. Verse 18. That undeserved kindness, that grace from God, do you want to know that in your life? Well, that's the invitation from Paul. and It's the invitation that we're going to be offering to all the people that we know in Earlsfield and Wimbledon Park and wherever we live. And the only way that that grace is received is through the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has defended it. Jesus has offered it in his life. And his death. And now we have the privilege, and it is a privilege, of making it known. We make it known in our relationships, carrying each other's burdens. We make it known in our decision making as we listen to the wisdom of God and sow and reap a harvest in the Spirit. But ultimately, we make it known as we make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. As we boast not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. Let's pray as we close.